to the board game community show. I'm your host, Riley Stark. Join me as I get to know folks in this community. They could be designers or streamers, podcasters, YouTubers, publishers, whatever. Really anything with a nerd at the end of its title is welcome here on the board game community show. Show, show. Welcome back to the Board Game Community Show. Today I am joined by a designer, John Dubois. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well. Good. I am really excited to have you on, actually. So uh, I, we were sort of talking for a minute before, but mm-hmm. Randy Flynn is the one that recommended you, and I was looking at your profile, and heading forward, is is, is that kind of your big game right now? Yeah, that's, that's my new game out. And so I judged that. Like a year or two ago, in the oh, what was what's the the board game workshop? Board game workshop, yeah, that would have been yeah. twenty twenty, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, so that was one of the games I judged there, and I remember like instantly gravitating right towards that because I thought it was such a cool idea and a cool story really so mm-hmm. i'm not going to tell your story uh i know i'm ju- jumping in here i'm just really excited to hear it straight from you uh, but sure. do, do you want to kind of lay out what led to the game and and what the game is in whatever order works best for you well after my first published game came out i, I started to think about like what i wanted to do and where i wanted to go with board game design you know the first design it's just get a game out there get it made Right. <laughs> then after that, you know, I started thinking, what, what's my place in the board game world? And at that time, there were a lot of conversations about cultural appropriation in games and, and things like that with, with white designers taking themes that were from other cultures and kind of sanding them down into something almost unrecognizable to, to sell a game. And, you know, that, that wasn't the kind of game I wanted to design. And so I started to think about um, what games are minded to design. What are games that I can make that nobody else can make? And if I can't think of those, what am I even doing here? <laughs> um, and so what, the first one I thought of is a game that, that still hasn't been published um, about um, local history from my hometown. Um, and then I was at dinner with a friend and, um, he suggested making a game about disabilities because that was something I did frequently online was disability advocacy. And it's something I do as part of my day job. And even then I was still kind of like, well, there's a lot of people who can tell disability stories better than I can. It's still like, it's something I'm involved in, but it's not really kind of mine. And then as I was walking to the car afterwards, talking to my my wife about it, um, it occurred to me that specifically head injuries is a story that's mine. Because in April 2015, I had a bad car accident and got a head injury. And um, 
the process for recovering from that was interesting because both my wife and I, in our professions, work with head injuries. And so I had experience from both the clinical side as well as personal experience. Um, and so I kind of went from there and, and kind of thought, okay, what if I'm going to make a game about head injuries? What does that game have to look like? What, what has to be in the story? Um, and I decided early on to make it sort of an individual struggle, a solo game, because that was my experience with it, um, which my father wasn't terribly fond of. Um, because his perspective was that, yes, it was my job to get better, but as part of a network of people supporting me. Right. And so it would be more suitable to a cooperative game. Um, and I kind of had two answers for, for him on it. The first is that would require a very asymmetrical, um, cooperative game almost where one player functions very differently than the other players. And that just wasn't something I was ready to design. That's that's a very, very difficult design. Yeah, that makes Um, sense. You know, and also like the support networks are in the solo game. They're just kind of NPCs. Yeah. Um, So I went from there, said, okay, so there has to be things you get better at. And those have to improve throughout the game, but they can also get worse if you have a bad hand or a bad day. Um, I wanted to make sure that it was very focused on resource management um, because a lot of dealing with not just traumatic brain injury, but disability in general is waking up at the start of the day, having a limited set of resources, whether it's... um, physical pain, whether it's physical mobility, financial resources, cognitive resources, you know, there's, there's always some way in which your resources are limited and you have to figure out how to do what you're going to do with that. Um, and I also wanted to make a comment on the state of healthcare in America. Um, You know, I started designing in this game in 2019 when um, there had recently been conversations about possibly repealing or changing the the Affordable Care Act. And from my experience, health insurance in America already isn't what it should be. And rolling that back wasn't – rolling that back was something that I didn't want, and I wanted to make a statement about that in the game. And so I did that by kind of making the insurance company um, the villain of the game, so to speak. You know, you have so many weeks to um, finish the game. And if you don't, the insurance company says, this therapy clearly isn't working for you. We're not paying for it anymore, Um, regardless of how much progress you've actually made. Um, And that's an argument that happens a lot in healthcare. Um, usually it's the healthcare provider making the argument instead of the person receiving the healthcare. Um, but the argument with insurance about who, whether or not insurance should continue paying um, happens way too much. And I wanted that to at least be a subtext in the game. Um, yeah. And so like I started getting a lot of those pieces, started throwing them together and kind of seeing what, what made sense. 
and um, you know, I kind of naturally tended towards a small deck of cards because that was my previous design experience, and you know, you start with what you know, um, and that worked pretty well. Um, with each card being four different stages of a skill, and then just as you improve that skill, you rotated or flipped the card. Um, which provided its own challenge because you had to remember to put the cards back in the deck in the same orientation. Um, but it also worked well for um, kind of visual planning. Um, and so uh, once I, that went through kind of its paces, um, it sort of became a focus uh, when the pandemic came as kind of the game I, I was going to choose to work on during the pandemic because um, as a solo game, I could run through it a lot faster than trying to do dummy hands for a trick-taking game or right. playing multiple sides of a co-op. Um, and so I entered it in the Board Game Workshop contest in 2020, um, and I was a semi-finalist there, I think. Um, and then I also participated in the pitch project, uh, which Jay Cormier and Sen Fung Lim uh, ran. And in both those contests, I got a lot of the same feedback, which was, this is a good game. This is an important game that nobody in their right mind would make. <laughs> um, you know, just saying it's a good game, but it's a pretty poor product. It's a one-player game. A lot of companies won't even touch a single-player game. Um, it's got a very... How did the one publisher put it? It's got a theme that is not fun. Oh, sad. Well, It's, I... it's about something that isn't fun. Yeah. Um, and... You know, usually my response to that is, how many copies has Pandemic sold? But... That wasn't persuasive. <laughs> um, you know, and so it kind of had those two things working against it. And also at the time, you know, it was, it was a small card game. And so it didn't have a lot of shelf presence. Yeah. And so a lot of publishers were saying, okay, this is a game I like. This is a game I can play. I don't see a world where I put this game on a store shelf and people pick it up. Um, and so I was starting to think about whether or not I wanted to make this a, a foray into self-publishing and somebody recommended, um, that I try a pitch to Hollandspiel, um, which has the benefit of, um, not having a lot of those concerns. A lot of the other publishers had, you know, you don't need to worry about picking up a Hollandspiel game on a store shelf because, almost all of their sales are through their web store. Um, they don't need to worry about pushing a 5,000 copy print run because everything's print on demand. Right. And they use that flexibility to publish games and make games that a lot of publishers can't because their margins are more flexible. Um, you know, and Amabel's done a lot of her own designs um, between this guilty land 
and the vote um, addressing serious topics in games. And so I kind of looked at the website and said, all right, this is, this is where I want to go. Um, and they both really liked the game and we got the contract out and now the game's, uh, now the game's published. Um, congratulations. That is huge. Yeah. I remember judging it and there are literally only two games that I remember from that contest. Now there's some that I remember hazy, but this one was the one that stuck the absolute most with me. I would think about this and be like, I need to look that up again. And I couldn't remember your name. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't remember the designer. I just remember the premise, the cards, the spoons that, you know, like I remember all Mm -hmm. these little things. Um, And I was, I I always wondered what happened. And so I'm, I'm so happy to be able to connect and see all this. And I, you know, I'll order myself a copy here soon and, and actually get to play it because I, I got to judge it, you know, <laughs> judge yeah. it without playing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so. we had a couple of those games where it was like, okay, I judged you two years ago. Where When's it coming out? <laughs> yeah. Well, especially seeing those contests, you know, they, a lot of them were, they were pretty far. I, I remember a lot of them seeming like they were Kickstarter ready or pitch ready. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how many of them actually went on. I should talk to Chris about that. How many have done that? Well, and it, it was a weird time to be entering things in that contest because almost all of those games were designed as products considering the market reality that really, really changed. Yeah, well, and that was like right at the beginning of the change, right? right? Yeah. So, I yeah, yeah, that was interesting. So it's you know what what might have been a great game in 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 2019. You can't even you know, and I I even think about party games. Like I can't imagine trying (laughs) to sell Pie Face today. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, (laughs) see, your game was like. I think I think that's also what hit home with me was that it was a solitaire game and it was something that I could just break out and do on my own. Mm-hmm. And that really fascinated me. And it it was like right at the right time, essentially, because, you know, obviously everybody's board gaming time was probably hit pretty hard there where they didn't necessarily build up their solo games and their and their everything, their uh, co-op. Right. So, yeah. Um. Well, that is awesome. What other, I'm going to jump back actually, just for a minute. Uh, sure. Why don't we talk about what the game actually is? How does it work? What's the mechanics? Okay. So um, in heading forward, you are taking the role of somebody who has just had a traumatic brain injury. And your goal is to get your skills as recovered as possible by the end of however many weeks. Um, that changes with the difficulty you choose for the game. Um, each skill is represented on one card. And that card has um, four different stages for the skill. And it starts out very simple. Um, you know, all you can do with the card is get a little bit better. And then as the skills advance, you can do things like you can um, improve your mental capacity, which lets you draw more cards at the start of your turn. Um, you can gain spoons, which work as a kind of an action point system um, and let you do more actions during your turn. 
um, you can gain money uh, through kind of your financial goals, which lets you pay for other things later in the game. Um, and as you improve those skills, um, you will discard cards in your hand that represent, in addition to a skill, um, the time it takes to do something, as well as um, the term in the game is care, but it represents sort of a community support, family support, some sort of support network that you use to help you get further in, in your rehabilitation. Um, that improves as the skill improves as well. And so the first couple rounds of the game, you're kind of going through the skills you have, you're discarding some cards, you're improving others. And then at some point during the first round, you hit what's called the trigger skill. At the start of the game, there is one skill taken out of the deck that represents the trigger for your traumatic brain injury. Um, like, let's say you pull a trigger skill of driving. That might mean that your brain injury came from a car accident, and when you drive, there's a chance that you'll see something that triggers um, post-traumatic stress from that accident. Um, then, if you, whenever you draw that card, you stop everything. You have to deal with that skill before you can do anything else. And if you can't, you discard your hand and then you're turned and move on. Oh, okay. Problem with that is every time you're stuck with a card in your hand at the end of your turn that you can't complete, if it's past stage one, it slides back a level. If you don't use it, you lose it. Um, so as the game goes on, you'll have some successes, some setbacks. Eventually, you get to a point where you will have in your hands stage four skills. They're as advanced as they can possibly be, and you can complete them. And when you do that and you complete what's on the card, and usually it's something um, pretty in-depth, um, you can take that card out of your deck, at that you've finished that skill, and if you're able to finish three different skills before the time runs out, you win. If time runs out, you don't win, and the insurance company, you know, does her thing. Um, <laughs> and so the core of the game is hand management, resource management, um, and trying to develop this balance between all the different things you have to do. Um, there are a lot of ways in the game to get caught up and overcommit to a resource. And you'll end up having a lot of that resource, but you won't be able to do anything with it. Um, you know, if you push too hard into the cognitive skills, you'll have this handful of cards, but you won't have any spoons. So you can only play one card a skill, one card a turn still. You know, if you develop too many spoons without developing the other skills, you'll have all this time in the world to do actions, but you won't have anything to do with it. Um, if you focus too heavily in the financial skills, you will earn money, but money can't buy improvement. Um, and so it's, it's kind of this balancing act between the resources that kind of pushes you towards improving those skills. Um, and one thing that I made sure to keep in the game is 
it's not like progressing the skills is universal. Um, most of the time when you play the game, even if you're successful, you are going to finish that game with skills in your deck that are still at level one or two. Because there's so many things you can do in a rehabilitation program that you need to pick and choose. Yeah. And that's true in real life as well as in the game. Is is that you have to choose what areas of improvement are most important to you and most relevant for your life. Um, and what shape your therapy takes is based on that. Um, same thing in heading forward. You know, you, you pick skills early on that you're going to improve. You don't necessarily stick, have to stick with them, but as you play through the game, you're going to find that there are some skills where you want to improve this skill to reach the game's end state, but improving this skill doesn't help you get there. Right. Um, and so there's kind of that ebb and flow as well. Very interesting. While designing it, did you ever get to points where you were like, ooh, this is too real or too, you know, like too heavy maybe? So <laughs> there were a couple of skills that I had to mechanically, it was too heavy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I always thought in everything in terms of like, what, what are you actually doing as you're playing these cards? Um, and the, the one that I remember is that a lot of the way the game plays changes based on what your trigger skill is. Because when you complete the trigger skill, you still do what's in the card, except you don't gain brains, spoons, or money. So one of the skills is attention. Your ability to pay attention to what's going on. And the thing you do when you complete that skill and improve that skill is you remove cards from your deck. Oh. Just take them out of the game. Starts yeah. out with, you know, something in your dice, you know, your discard pile, you removed a card from discard pile from the game, and like as you move on, you're just taking three or four cards out of your deck. And it's only like an 18-card deck. It's not a very big deck. Oh, wow. And the effect of it was designed to be you're improving the quality of your hand every hand. Right. But time moves on the calendar every time you reshuffle your deck. Oh, so speeding up. So, right. So you've got these better hands, but now you're going to have fewer hands for the rest of the game. Yeah. And that was mitigated because when you could just choose not to do that that turn. Let's discard the attention card for resources this turn instead of playing it as a skill. Well, if attention's a trigger skill, you don't have that choice. Oh. So now, every time you hit your trigger card, you're removing a card from your deck. Hmm. And because you're removing a card from your deck, you're hitting that trigger skill more often. And the one time, though there was one time of playing through it, I ended up with a deck that was smaller than the amount of cards I drew. And oh, so wow. every single turn I was hitting this card. 
Man. And so, like, I, I got done, and I'm like, okay, obviously, mechanically, I have to do something about this, like, soft yeah. lock game can put on you. I said, but I also think about it, and, like, that's that's a panic attack. Oh, yeah. Like, that I mean, that's what that is. That That is y- y- your anxiety and panic being triggered to the point that you can't focus on anything else. Hmm. And, and so you can't break that. And it's like, so, you know, that, that's on the one hand, it was something mechanically I had to fix. And on the other hand, I'm like, I actually managed to create a real world situation in this game. Yeah. That is <laughs> um, really fascinating how it kind of lent itself to that. So, um, in terms of me encountering anything, with my personal recovery, um, I haven't done that because honestly designing the game um, ended up being a therapeutic technique for me in terms of processing. Um, so, so when I started designing the game, I, I was four years at four and a half years out of the head injury. And um, generally speaking, the growth you've made from your head injury um, more than five years afterwards, that's your new normal. Oh, okay. Um, Like there just becomes this point where the amount of progress you're making just gets slower as your brain settles into a new routine. Um, And I was still having some symptoms that I didn't want to be my new normal. You know, I was still having some memory issues. Um, I was still having to, uh, sometimes I was driving to work and um, there was a car accident on the side of the road. I got anxious, tend to pull over. Um, you know, there, there were still some things that, you know, didn't stop me from going to work. But I'd be a half hour to an hour late sometimes. Uh-huh. You know, I'd, I'd miss something I needed to do. Um, and that just wasn't something, it was something that I felt like I should be beyond. Um, and the process of designing the game and thinking more critically about what goes into recovering from a head injury, it kind of helped me process a lot of the feelings I was having about that. Um, and... Um, that even played into like, as I was starting to write sample turns for the rule book, it was, you know, normally I write a sample turn by like throwing components out, throwing on the table and just doing it. And I'm like, nah, this time I'm going to like pull out the cards that are like, these are the skills that were hard during my head injury recovery. Uh-huh. And that's what I'm going to work with as the example. Um, and I actually wrote, the example of play, all this didn't make it into the final rule book. Like the example of play that I submitted to Hollenspiel, the rule book, it was written in the first person. Um, which, you know, and, I, and that was a, a way that I kind of played with how games work a bit is mm-hmm. like, you know, there's, there's a lot of like, do you write in the second person? Do you write in the third person? And I'm like, no, nah, I'm writing this one in the first person. Interesting. <laughs> Works for you, right? Yeah. 
I think that's kind of eye-catching. Well, that's re- that's really interesting, though. And this is your was this your fourth published game? Depending on how you want to think about it, this was I, I think about it as my third published board game. Um, my first published board game had a standalone expansion, so you could call it fourth. Oh, okay, gotcha. But this is this one is kind of the fourth where um, it's a, it's a new design system. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. For the third. <laughs> the third slash fourth. Right. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Um, and so- this, is, this is, you know, my deck, the deck of, I guess, I think it's 36 cards and a play mat is my largest board game design. Oh, yeah. Physically. Yeah, I saw that there was kind of like a, a play, a calendar, right? Essentially, yeah. that's like the play mat so that you mm-hmm. can track your days, um, which I thought was a fun design. Uh, are the others, are your other games 18 cards? Um, well, one of them is 18 cards. Um, and then there's a standalone expansion, also 18 cards. And the other one's just a postcard. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Which one is that? Um, that one is 500 miles. Okay, great. So um, Buttonshy did a, they do a board game of the month club. And for one of the years, they did a they did a series of games every month. You get a postcard game that was inspired by a one hit wonder, and and so I I picked up five hundred miles and I made kind of a uh, penny pushing game out of it. Oh yeah, how does that yeah. work? Look, literally, <laughs> see, the entire object of the game is. The back of the postcard has lines on it that are mile markers. Oh, nice. And the object of the game is to be the first person to have their penny walk 500 miles <laughs> without then walking 500 more. Oh, nice. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, you know, get get your flick the penny so it lands in between these two lines. Like it's, it's a very basic dexterity game, but it, it fit the theme really well. That's funny. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and then your other game with the expansion is that that I don't know how to say it. Avignon? It's Avignon. Avignon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So what's that one? So that one is a um, two-player um, influence building game where uh, it's based on a time a time in the history of the Catholic Church when there were two people claiming to be pope. And they were trying to get various people to support their claim as Pope. Um, and so much in the same way, uh, you know, that's kind of the theme on the abstract game. You and your opponent are rival Popes. And you're trying to collect um, members of the Catholic Church to join your congregation and support you as Pope. And if you're able to collect three members of the congregation before your opponent does, um, you win. And it's, it's a basic tug-of-war system or like, you know, the, it's action selection, tug-of-war, pull, pull things uh, towards you, push, push guys you don't want away from you. Um, you know, it's a quick five, ten-minute game um, that... Um, probably now is built up to a 15 or 20 minute game. If you actually play with all the expansions, 
nice. because that's how expansion creep works. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. It's not often that a, an expansion comes out and it's like, oh, you know, this turns an hour game to a 40-minute uh, right. game. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's one of those where it's like, so there's different, each expansion has different character cards. Uh-huh. And the, the base game has six characters. Uh, and the expansion has another six. And then there's a couple of other mini expansions. A couple of them add three more characters each. And then there's one that adds like a couple other modules with mini rules you can tack on. Like it's one of those where if this was a game that had a more traditional publishing model instead of the 18 card wallet game model, I'd probably be looking to publish or get them to print like a second edition that's a 54-card box. Oh, okay. That included basically included a lot of the expansion content as the full game and just that base six-character version as, as the introduction game. I'm always super impressed with how clever people get on those 18-card games anyways. Like, just the base. Man, it blows <laughs> my mind. Well, it's, it's one of those where, like, Avignon was kind of one of the first ones. Um, Button Shy Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I th- Avignon. Try to remember. It, it was either the the Avignon was the first one to break twenty thousand dollars on Kickstarter, or the first one to get to the number of backers it did. I forget which one it was. That was one, and then kind of the so the pretense the social game was the other. Oh. Um. You know, and now they've got like Sprawlopolis making $150,000. Yeah. <laughs> with 18 card games, which is great. I love it. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Finding things to do with that that people are, are so willing to support. Um, well, you were part of that pioneering, you know? Yeah. Building it. So, bravo. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, well, that is really awesome. What about unpublished games? How many games you, I mean, a designer's got probably so many ideas in their head, but are what's kind of the furthest along so that you can talk I, about? I have three games that I'm working on right now. Um, one of them is kind of like, there's a co-design I'm working on with John Gilmore that is kind of like, it's done and it's there and we're trying to find the right publisher for it because it's okay. very toyish. Um, and... It's, it's kind of component-heavy, and um, we have our eye on a particular intellectual property for it that, like, various publishers have gotten to various stages of discussion with the, uh, with the intellectual property holder. Um, but, like, we're, we're still kind of, like, in this kind of always searching for publishers holding pattern with it. Uh-huh. Um, and then I'm working on two others. Um, I'm working on my own on the it's a cooperative game about the auto strikes that took place in my hometown in the 1930s, um, where um, kind of the, the gist of the strikes was where previous strikes there was a lot of picketing outside the factory. In this strike, um, the workers actually went into the factory, sat down at the stations, and just refused to do anything. Um, and it was this kind of the start of a new tactic that stopped, in this case, GM, from bringing in outside workers because 
where it's going to go. Yeah. Um, and it ended up, the historical event led to GM recognizing the auto union for the first time. Um, it was one of the big <coughs> labor actions that legitimized um, the National Labor Board, because that was a new thing under Roosevelt at the time. Um, so the game is you're trying to keep control of the factory long enough for GM to decide it's not, they're losing too much money by you being around and then negotiate. Um, it's almost the opposite of heading forward. It was heading forward or trying to accomplish these goals <laughs> by a certain time. Um, in Striking Flint, you are, your goal is run out the clock. Yeah. Don't, don't lose for this long. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. That, was, um, that sounds awesome. And then I am working with Doug Lewandowski on a, asymmetrical trick-taking game um, where um, each player has each hand um, a different scoring condition. Hmm. And so, um, you know, to kind of translate it to a traditional deck of cards, it could be like one player scores points by collecting spades and another player scores points by collecting face cards. And so there are a lot of times where they don't necessarily care except to stop you from getting points whether they get this trick. And at other times, everybody wants the trick. Right. Um, and there's just it's, – it's a really neat dynamic um, given that you bid at the start of the hand on which scoring – and being able to pick scoring condition first – and then you have to try to use, you know, what you've got in your hand in the scoring condition to the best of your ability. And uh, it's been really fun and uh, to work on. And we're just kind of that's one that that really suffered from the pandemic because it's it's an around the table game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really hard to do trick taking virtually. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> um, you know, and that's kind of all I'm working on right now. You know, um, this is, I, I try to stay in a position where like, obviously if I have a game that takes off and hits the moon and I can quit my job, I'll be thrilled. But, um, there's also a certain amount of privilege in this being a side hustle where if, a month goes by and I don't have time to work on anything. That's okay. Right. You know, I'm not hurting myself if, if something happens and, and I, you know, I can, I can put the game down to go take my kids to the zoo instead of being like, no, I really got to get this fifth iteration in today. Yeah. Um, you know, and I also have the ability to win someone asked to collaborate or asked about a collaborator kind of look at the online behavior and say, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, um, that's something that I would like more people to do, but I also understand that a lot of people can't afford to. 
and I'm just very lucky to be in a position where I can. Yeah. Um, and where when I when I look for publishers, it's not just a publisher who is a good financial fit for the game, but a, per, a publisher who I think is a good values fit for me. That is really important, I think, especially nowadays. Uh, I mean, I did my research. I went through your tweets before I invited you because I was like, you know, I, I'm all about inclusiveness. I'm all about inclusion. But I don't want people who are intolerant. I don't right. want a bigot. Right. I don't, you know, like I am, I, I try my best to like only have guests that I will actually enjoy liking or, you know, enjoy right. talking to. And, 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 and I'm always, I'm open to talk about things and have disagreements and a civil conversation. Well, and there's so much like, so before I was designing board games, I was more involved in um, tabletop role playing games. And uh-huh. I got to know a lot of people who, who were working in um, freelance positions at, at those publishers. And, like, it's hard. Like, if that's your living and people are bouncing back and forth between positions all the time. Yeah. And, and you know what person A did at Y convention, but you're like, if I say something, am I going to be able to eat next week? Like, that's that's a – like. I wish people could say more. I wish people would say more, but I also understand why sometimes they can't. Yeah. I have. Yeah, I absolutely understand. And it's not, it's not a good, it's not a good system. Um, and, and yeah, it's not what I'm here to talk about, obviously, but like, Hey, we're I, open. We can talk about whatever we want. <laughs> you know, the, the, the <laughs> fact that people get, get forced with the choices saying you have to compromise in this way or, um, this isn't a career for you. It's just, yeah. Um, that's less so in board games, I think. Um, just because there's a, a much wider variety of publishers and, um, but it, it's, you know, it still happens. There's still, I still know people who get started in a project and they're like, wait, you brought who on? <laughs> the rut row. <laughs> You know, and and it's you know, and I'm I'm sure some days I'm gonna I'm gonna miss something because you can only keep your ear to the ground so much. But oh, yeah. I try. Absolutely, I'm grateful for the friends I've made in this space. That you know, I'll be having a I'll be you know interacting with certain people online, and then somebody will kind of contact me and be like, "Hey, yeah, like, just so you know, right. this went down," and I'm like. Right. Thank you so much for letting me know because I was totally, bl- you know, <laughs> blissfully ignorant there. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I totally feel that. And, and I, yeah, like being independent, right? You do get to kind of do a little bit of research, make sure it's a right fit and, and that you don't uh, send the wrong message or, you know, like, well, it's, it's, it's not even like, like in once in one way, send the wrong message, and in another way, like this is a social hobby. Yeah, I've, I've made a lot of friends in this hobby, and and I don't want to work with people who hurt my friends. Yeah, or or yeah, who that's would. a good way to do. Yeah, you know, or or who would hurt people, and like that's just that's not, you know, that if you don't draw that line early. It's hard. It gets harder to draw it later, and so 
Yeah. I, I just got to draw it where I can. And, and there are times when I've looked at arguments and just been like, I, I think you both need to take a step back here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I don't think either one of you is doing what you want to do. And, um, but I don't know either of you well enough to actually say that. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a tricky place. I always but, think you know, of the, Oh, go ahead. I said it's, it's, it gets, it gets easier when it, when it's, when you just frame it in. Okay. Who's trying to hurt people? Yeah. Or who doesn't care if they hurt people on their way to whatever they're doing. Like, yeah, I totally get that. I always think of the bar story where it's like a white supremacist comes into the bar and, you know, is sporting their attire and, and it's, you know, the, yeah, the bartender then has a choice on kicking them out or letting them drink and just like not making a big deal about it. And then it's like, they don't make a big deal. More of them are going to start. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's going to become a white supremacist bar, you know, like, And if they kick him out, it might be a scene then, but then it's not going to become a gathering place for that. So, right. Um, yeah, I think it's just curating your audience and, and that's the type of thing. Yeah, that's it. That's curating. And that's yeah. something, and that's something that a lot of people have helped me do better at. And, and I'm very grateful to them. Um, for various reasons, I'm not going to name them. Most related to their safety, but right. I'm hoping if they're listening, they know who they are. I love that. Yeah, I. I mean, yeah, we've all got our friends, our support networks, and and we're a part of other people's support networks. So mm-hmm. I, we're a community. <laughs> That's the goal. Yeah. So normally I start the show off, but I was so excited to talk about the games and everything. Um, but how did you get into board gaming? Um, well, um, the short answer is my wife didn't want to play Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. I I was really heavily involved in that community. Um, prior to meeting my wife. Um, and, I had done some dipping in my toe into board games and she's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not interested in the D and D stuff, but I'll play those board games with you. And it just became a, a matter of what kind of, did I want to spend my resources on games? She would play with me or games. She wouldn't. Yeah. I love that. It's the, our family plays motto board games yep. are an investment in family, you know, mm-hmm. So that is spectacular. I mean, that brings me to the next question I ask when I know people are married or have a partner is do you game with them? So how often do you guys game? Do you two game? Um, it, you know, it, it used to be a lot more um, when we had younger kids and we had less pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, um, we try to go, do a game made a month at least. Nice. Um you know, um, now that we're starting to get more settled, she just changed jobs. I changed jobs a little bit. Um, I'm going to try to start getting something out, you know, with her, or with the kids, at least every week, um, just to get back into that habit. Yeah. 
I think it's fun, right? If you can, that's great. If mm-hmm. not, you know, it'll happen. Uh, so what, what uh, I was going to ask if you play with your kids too, but it sounds like you do on occasion, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, do any of them or all of them play test your games? No. Okay. Uh, well, no, I'm sorry. My wife does. My kids do not. Okay. Um, my Actually, <laughs> I have never beaten my wife at Avignon. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that game has been, we have been playing that game in some form or another for eight years. I have never beaten her. Wow. <laughs> At one point, she joked that the reason I kept making expansions was I was trying to make the game complicated enough that I could win. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love the, I love hearing game designers make games where they just can't seem to win. You know, I think that every designer has those games where they're like, I designed this and I feel like I should be able to win. <laughs> But I just can't. <laughs> so that is that's incredible. Um, do you still play any RPGs? Um, I haven't in a while. Um, yeah. You know, I, st- I still dig out like um, I will play with. I ca- I'll still read them, and I'll I'll do some solo stuff. Um, I just did this past weekend. I tried out the. Uh, the Dungeon Hero zine games. Um, it's kind of like a little short solo RPG. Um, takes like 15, 20 minutes. It's really kind of just a neat way to spend an hour for $3. Nice. Um, and it's just like, it's literally, it's like, okay, take a D6. This is your encounter. These are your dice. These are, you know, what skills are you going to use? Um, kind of in the same way you would in D&D, only it's a lot looser um, because you're the only person you're accountable to for your role system. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. Do you hope to play RPGs again in the future someday? Or um, I do. I, I'm probably going to do it when my kids are interested in it. In it. That's kind of the, uh, my thought, um, you know, it's, it's just with, with the age my kids are at, um, there, I'd rather be flexible to do what they want to do than have that kind of recreational commitment every single week. Oh, yeah. Um, right now. You know, board game nights, you can reschedule. You can cancel once in a while. If you're canceling on D&D every other week, you're not being a good participant in the game. Um, <laughs> and that's not what I want to do. Um yeah. Board games are essentially, I mean, board games for the most part, you play it and you're done that night. You know, right. you, it's one session. Uh, yeah. Obviously, yeah. legacy games, exception, but. Right. And I'm just not going to be in a position where um, I, I'm, I've got to choose between this D&D commitment or taking my kids to the zoo. Right. Or to the zoo. Yeah. So. That makes perfect sense. Well, outside of board games, let's go outside of this lovely hobby that we are in. And uh, what do you enjoy doing? Um, I enjoy visiting museums. Um, and I've kind of got this local rotation of museums that we visit. Um, and we kind of go every time there's a new exhibit. Um, 
most recent one, uh, our local history museum had an exhibit where uh, they actually got um, some of the Apollo mission moon rocks. Oh. Um, so they had a big Apollo uh, thing going on, and that was, you know, uh, my daughter was super into that. Um, so that was cool. Um, I do a lot of reading, um, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, that's kind of my, uh, my wind down when things are getting anxious as I, as I pull out a book. Yeah. That's cool. What kind of, uh, I guess what kind of fiction, but also what kind of nonfiction, but we'll, you know, um, so fiction, um, I, I read a lot of fantasy, um, but I'm also um, the the series I'm reading right now um, most regularly is uh, Sean McGuire's Encrypted series, uh, which, which follows a family of cryptozoologists, um, people who study and protect um, non natural species, um, as Your it were. Bigfoots and <laughs> right. Um, and she just does a really good job of creating a family that is as dysfunctional as a family who studies cryptozoology has to be, <laughs> uh, while still making them internally consistent enough to make sense. <laughs> yeah, that's so, fun. That does sound like a good time. Um. So that's kind of my, my fiction on uh, my nonfiction. Um, I am reading a lot of, um, well, right now it's a lot of political stuff. Um, I just finished, uh, Ibram X. Kennedy's how to be an anti-racist. Um, and I've got, um, what do I have on t- I've got a couple of disability books coming up next. Um, there's been a, a good amount of disability memoirs coming out in the last few years. Nice. Um, Elsa uh, Sunison's um, Being Seen, which is about being uh, growing up deafblind. And what was the other one I had on tap? It's Alice Wong's book. I can't remember the name, though. But it's also got a memoir about growing up disabled and, and um, a lot of how disability politics is going to work. Um and I'm transitioning into uh, historical accounts of labor actions because I'm designing that game too. So even, even my non-game hobbies bleed into that. Yeah. Oh, of course. I I love seeing that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in TV and in books, they say, write what you know. And, you know, you are writing what you know here with, uh, you know, heading yeah. forward and, and uh, you know, writing your town's history, something from there and stuff that you are actually interested in that passion bleeds through right love it do you have other hobbies um not really those are i mean that was that's a good amount i think i have children that's that's uh (laughs) which you know i I say lovingly like it's it's you know i I engage in their hobbies and like that you know they enjoy board games they play their games my my daughter is my daughter is eight years old. We went to the library today at one in the afternoon. She checked out 13 chapter books. She's already Ooh. read three. Oh, wow. Okay. That's <laughs> so, impressive. She is. Uh, she just, 
that she, you know, she just loves it. And um, so we, we participate in that as much as we can with them. So, yeah, that is really cool. Good. I mean, that's great. Way to be a good parent. <laughs> it's easy when they like the same things you do. <laughs> yeah, right. Reading and <laughs> games. <laughs> I always joke because I'm not a sports person. I'm like, what if my son, like, what if I have a son or a daughter that's like really into baseball and like, I like baseball. I like playing baseball, but watching it, I know that I would do it. I would know I would get into it and and learn as much as I could. But I'm just like I would rather have them be a nerd. <laughs> yeah, I I am. Uh, that, that's kind of my my big fear right now is to be big sports kids, and it, it, <laughs> both because my experience with sports as a kid was not great, uh huh, and because I I really just have a lot of issues with how sports transitioned back into in-person after the pandemic. And I'm still, I still haven't fully processed that and gone with like, really? This is how you did that? (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm grateful that I don't have to worry about that for now, at least. (laughs) Well, let's go to ridiculous theme. So ridiculous theme, we each come up with some sort of ridiculous, silly, whatever theme for a board game. Um, It doesn't have to have mechanics or anything. It can literally just be a theme. But if you want to add a little flavor to it, you can. Do you have one? So um, are you familiar with State Line Road in uh, Kansas, Kansas City? No. Okay. So Kansas and Missouri border each other. And Kansas City straddles that border. And there is a road that goes down the middle of Kansas City called State Line Road. Various businesses have moved their headquarters to the other side of State Line Road multiple times. Because one state started offering bigger tax breaks than the other. Oh, and so that is the theme is, is that you are one of the states on one side of State Line Road and you are trying to, it's an economic game, you're trying to get as many bus- as much business income in your state as possible just by getting them to move across the street. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, I like that. That is interesting. <laughs> Look at that. Historical. You just pull right from there. Man, that's, do you just, I guess, is, does this come from like reading nonfiction? Is this, is um, that, that, one I, that one I heard in a podcast. Um, okay. And there was that one. I forget whether it's the same city or a different city, but they actually had a situation where um, the, there was a mall on a state line or a city line or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there would be businesses that would move to the other side of the mall to get a better tax rate. <laughs> Interesting. That's um, so crazy. But no, I, I pull a lot of that from, like, I believe really heavily in hyper-local design. Like, I think that every designer should try to design a game about where they're from or something particular to where they live because it's a way to get unique games and unique themes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I always try and think of that kind of thing of like, so I'm part Native American and my grandfather was a storyteller. You're, mm-hmm. You know, they weren't allowed to write down the stories. They had to 
sit down with another storyteller. They would pass it on and then they would have to repeat it exactly the same way. And they could only do it at certain times of the year too. You know, like it's mm-hmm. not like they could just be like, what story do I want it? It's like, no, this is, you know, we're at this period of the year and this is the story that's told. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would do that. He would go around in full garb and, and go around to schools and do those kind of presentations. And, and I always think how fun it would be to have some sort of game that could convey that. But as white presenting as I am, I also worry about how, right. uh, how that would come across and, and being able to do with that. Right. I mean, I would definitely be, you know, reaching out to, to some relatives and reaching out to cultural uh, uh, consultants and, and trying to make sure that I really got it down. Right. But I do think that would be a fun thing of like the storytelling yeah. and being able to like spread culture, be able to spread. I and mean, that's a, I don't know how ridiculous theme that is, but like uh, a very meaningful theme of, of being able to show, you know, kind of what that native American history is and, and those traditions and different, there's different roles in there too. I mean, yeah. So that could be something fun. That wasn't the one I had originally come up with, but as we were talking, I was like, oh, you know, like this is something near and dear to my heart that I've actually put a lot of thought and effort into, but I've always been really scared to actually do because I want to do it right. Yeah. I mean, I, I whenever I ask people that question, I, I hear so many interesting things. Like I, I heard so, like somebody talk about they, they could do a game about rival street gangs in Manchester. Like just, you know, again, something that, Nobody knows about besides them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is so fascinating. Oh, man. That was a good... I mean, you, like, kind of flipped that on me. Because I was thinking of, like, a museum game or something. Because you had been talking about, you know, you love going to the museum and stuff. And so I had, like, started thinking of how that could work. But then you, the way you phrased that question, I was just like, no, this is the answer. <laughs> so... Bravo. Thanks for it. I almost want to change how I ask it now of like, what's something personal that you would like to make a game about? But that's not ridiculous theme anymore. <laughs> it's not ridiculous theme. It's, it's, it's a uh, hyper local theming. And that's uh, and yeah. that, that's a service to the community. Yeah, that really is. That is so cool. I mean, ridiculous theme is too, because you can get, you can always get something fun out of the ridiculous stuff. But. It's true. Yes. Yeah. Well, my wife, so a lot of the games that I've designed and spent a lot of time on, um, I have a plethora of mental health issues. And so I'll make that into a game. Like, what's it like living with ADHD? What's it like being bipolar? You know, mm-hmm. like, and I'll gamify it. And then we'll play it and she'll be like, this is really interesting, but also like gamifying mental health problems is like really hard to do. And so I end up like retheming it. So it's something else, but yeah. And what's it's, it's funny because like when people talk about gamifying things related to mental health, like there's stuff that just people don't even think about until someone tries it. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've read uh super better by Jane McGonigal. Uh, uh-uh. uh, so um, she's a neurologist who uh, also had a head injury and she developed her own game for helping her to regain her skills and to kind of cope with her recovery. Um, but she published a book about how games um, help people heal in, in terms of specifically um, injury and trauma. And, and there's stuff in there like, people talk about games to help treat PTSD 
the game with the most clinical research behind it when it comes to treating PTSD is Tetris. Huh. Why is because that? Because the way Tetris engages the brain directly interacts with how PTSD interacts with the brain. That is and it kind of interferes with it. And and like there's like there's clinical research on like playing Tetris reduces PTSD symptoms. That is fascinating. Yeah. Huh. That is so cool. You know, and I think I look at like Tanya Pobeda, who's doing the all this mm-hmm. research into board games and, and people she's connected with, and and it'll be really interesting seeing in five, ten years how much research we'll start going into board gaming and yeah, cause it, it's grown exponentially. Like it's, it's great. I love seeing that. And with that growth, I think naturally should come better understanding of what we're doing. Well, right. And it's starting with like kind of the bigger industries in gaming. And people talk about video game research, you know, there's a lot yeah. of research into role-playing games because it, you know, in, in the modern form we've been around, um, you know, but like, and people still kind of think about board gaming as family game night, as opposed to, you know, e- even what I do at work when I, I've got some, I'm a, a speech pathologist oh, and, okay. um, I work at a school and I bring board games into school. I, you know, I'm, I, I straight out of college, I was playing apples to apples with kids. Oh, I love because, it. Because, well, because they're working on Identifying items in a category. Right. Comparing and contrasting items. Um, thinking of words that, um, you know, think, thinking of descriptions for words. And it's like, how does, how does apples to apples not do all of those things? <laughs> yeah. That is really cool. I love seeing games, uh, being implemented into classrooms, being implemented mm-hmm. into social scheme. I have, oh, it was on my old podcast. I had a, uh, a therapist who would use board games occasionally to teach things like the mind, even of like, you know, that unpredictability. And why did you choose to put the card down then when you were certain right. that I had a higher card than you, but like it was that social pressure and learning, you know, like learning those skills and just like, it is so Cool. And, and it's also interesting seeing how many people in the education field are designing games. Mm-hmm. And I think that it comes the from the metalinguistics of the mind is just ridiculous. It's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it is next level. Like, it really I, is. I, just, I, I could never bring the. I want to bring a game into my school. I never could just because, like, just the, just the nonverbals and the reads and doing that, like, that they would just, they, it would, a lot of my students, it would just break them. And, it, what age it, are they about? Uh, K, K to eight. Okay, but you know it's it's K to eight with language disabilities, and so it's like yeah. so you know we're, we're uh, my older kids probably could do it, but like it's just not that's not the kind of language I'm helping them develop. You know, right? I mean, it would be fun for a day to bring it in and see what they do, <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of show it the importance right. of kind of nonverbal. Right. Maybe right. I don't. Yeah. Uh, 
it is fascinating. I've played it with quite a few kids, like eight, ten years old, and it is definitely harder because now you're having to think about like, well, what are the other adults thinking, and what's this child thinking? What's this they outlier? Get, they get mad enough about code names. <laughs> oh, that's a great one too. Oh my it's goodness, great. it's that's a nuts one. That's frustrating as an adult. <laughs> uh, that's incredible. Well, I think, is there anything else you want to talk about before we close out? No, I don't think so. Perfect. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I, I really, I'm glad yeah. that you were able to come on and that we were able to chat like this. No, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're a fascinating person. So, <laughs> um, well, why don't you go ahead and plug your social media, your games, where people can buy your games, all that stuff. Okay. Um, you can find me on social media at John Dubois because... Um, I don't have original handles on social media. <laughs> um, my latest game is Heading Forward, which you can order from the Holland Spiel website. Um, and you can also still get, I believe, most of the versions of Avignon from Buttonshy's website. Thank you, John, for coming on. It was really great to get to know you and hear your story. And I am super excited to try your game. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can go to iTunes, rate, review it. That would help the show get seen more and just show appreciation. I love doing the show. I would do it if I didn't have any listeners because it's just so awesome to get to chat to all these amazing people in the community. But it also feels good to get a little recognition. You can also interact with me on Twitter at RyleNerd. You can email me, the board game community show at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. I love interacting with people. Tell me what games you've been playing. Just feel free to chat with me. I'm a chill person. If you're interested in actual play podcasts, I do one where I am the BM, aka Bunker Master, for a TCRPG based on the TCRPG of the Borderlands universe. It is so much fun. It's mostly comedy. There's a little drama in there, some action, but it's definitely more adult. So if that ain't your cup of tea, don't worry about it. As with every guest, you can go to the episode description and I will have links to their social media uh, or anything necessarily relevant to what we talked about. So go check the episode description for those links. If you want to see my beautiful face, then at the end of the month, the last Thursday of the month, I'm usually doing a show with the board game captain and board game grand, and we usually have a guest. It is called Board Game Insight, and it's on the board game captain's channel. So you can check that out, chat with us live, or watch it after the fact. I sometimes also play games with Mr. Rao Gaming, Ryan Rao, and have an awesome time doing that. So you can go check out those videos. And that is it. Until next time, keep nerding out. So this is uh, actually I'm I'm gonna go way back, way back to high school. Um, so in high school, we were playing taboo with our family. So me, my parents, my younger brother, and younger sister. And my brother and I were in high school, and we had discovered Magic the Gathering, which meant that we had an entire group of language to talk about various words that had nothing to do with the actual English language use of those words. 
we could start reading off rules text for cards. And that would, none of those words would be in the taboo list, but it would communicate exactly what the taboo word was. <laughs> to the point that my mother banned Magic the Gathering <laughs> from taboo. And I still think about that when it comes to like people having, um, you know, their own, you know, contextual language. Um, and also when I play code names and I have to remember who has and hasn't had various media experiences. <laughs>